This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Uh, the first question is, tell us about yourself without talking about the law. So it's very hard for me, Angela, to talk about myself without talking about <laughs> my family, because yeah. I'm a family man. So yeah. uh, I live in Toronto. I have a wife, a daughter, and a dog. Mm-hmm. And we spend our time between Toronto and Gravenhurst. We love to be outside hiking and enjoy skiing as well. Uh, so, you know, I'd be wrong if I didn't start this uh, this answer with talking about my family. Yeah. As for me, I was born in Swansea, Wales. My father was a metallurgical engineer, and he moved the family to northern Ontario, so I grew up in the Sioux. Uh-huh. And um, all of his friends were engineers, and so I felt the calling to study engineering. So I went to Queen's University, studied engineering, and then I worked for a little bit before I went back to the next phase of my career, which I'm not allowed to talk about given the question. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what was your law school experience like? I love law school. Coming out of engineering, I had so many labs, so many assignments. Uh-huh. I think we had something in excess of 30 hours a week, uh, 30 hours a week of, of classes and labs. Oh, wow. And so, finding the more relaxed atmosphere at law school was, was really great. The fact that I had worked before uh-huh. uh, meant that I came in and I sort of uh, treated law school like a job. I, uh, I will say that being an engineer, you know, I wasn't the strongest reader, and so I um, I did come to school feeling like I didn't belong. You know, I compared myself to other uh-huh. students with more traditional backgrounds, economics, history, poli-sci, you know, people that, that seemed to have thoughts and places that I didn't have places. And um, But I challenged myself. I challenged myself to come in with an attitude, assume that everybody felt the same way that I did on the inside, and that I should try everything, uh, which uh, opened my eyes to areas of law that I never would have studied, never would have had an interest in. For instance, I took family law and I enjoyed it. Um, and it introduced me to mooting, which sort of led me on the path of litigation. Oh, I see. So in the retrospect, was there one thing that you would have done differently? Yeah, you know, I was a notorious class cutter, and I shouldn't say that because people are going to listen to this and <laughs> not hire me, but um, I, I would have attended class more religiously. Um, you know, my, my view was if I didn't do the readings, I shouldn't show up and I shouldn't participate in the debate because I hadn't sort of done the homework, and as I told you, I struggled with the reading, so sometimes mm-hmm. I got behind, behind, but cutting class was a mistake in those opportunities, in those instances rather. There's so much to learn just by watching and being there and listening to the debate, so that's one thing I would have done differently. I also would have read more outside of law. Uh, I figured that out later in life, and I'm a voracious reader now, but I I think I would have started sooner. Uh, Reading in terms of just for fun, like novels or... Still related novels, to the law. Newspapers. Oh, okay. You know, I went to law. I, I went to law school with a fellow who studied uh, commerce at a place called Medicine Hat College, mm. which was a feeder for the University of Calgary. And so he felt that his diction wasn't very good. And he went to one of his faculty advisors who said, "Read, read, 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 read everything." And yeah. he loved sports, so he would read Sports Illustrated. He would read any magazine he could get his hands on related to sports. He would circle the words that he didn't understand. And on Friday, when we were all getting ready to go out and have some fun, he'd be sitting there with a dictionary and his words, writing out his words. And that just that simple exercise of uh, exposing yourself to words and sentences and ideas really improved his reading. And I wish I had taken that uh, that same approach early on. Wow. Um, 
So when and how did you identify your interests in intellectual property litigation? Great question. Um, I had heard about intellectual property really uh, uh -huh. much before law school, and, and I don't think I, the word litigation had ever crossed my cranium until I went to law school. I was a technical sales representative working as an engineer in the field, okay. and I learned about patent law from a patent lawyer when I was on site in one of my projects. And he told me about this wild and wacky world of patents, <laughs> and I was hooked. I thought it was an attractive option uh, for me, and I thought it was a great way to marry up my scientific education as an engineer with something new that seemed to be really interesting. Okay. And the litigation came from mooting. I, uh, I, I told you I had to push myself a little bit in yeah. law school, and I signed up for a first-year moot, and it went rather well for me, and that sort of encouraged me to think that I might be able to do this. And as I, so I'm, I'm a rare breed, you know, a lot of law students have figured out what they want to do. Mm -hmm. I went to law school with IP in mind or patents in mind, and within the first few weeks of law school, I, I got the litigation bug. I see. So for uh, those people who are still looking for their area of interest in law, could you please give them some sort of advice? Well, you know, read broadly, yeah. attend classes, maintain your curiosity, go to speeches. Um, if anything, if I hadn't had that patent attorney influence me, if I hadn't had the mooting experience influence me, I mm -hmm. would have missed those opportunities. And so, you know, it, it's sort of like you know, what a U.S. politician said once, I don't know what I don't know. And I think that's very true of the law school experience. You, you don't know about uh, what law is going to be like until you expose yourself to it, until you try it. Mm -hmm. So maintain an open mind and, and continue to take courses, get involved in organizations, do some pro bono work, try everything to see if there's something that, that sets a hook in you and pulls you in a particular direction. And for students that are looking to eventually practice in the area of patent law, is it really necessary to have a hard science background? Uh, good question. I get that all the time. <laughs> it really depends on who you ask. Uh, and and right. I always answer the same way. I mean, if you look at some of the leading lights in patent litigation, uh -huh. let's just talk about Justice Binney, for instance, who was retired from the Supreme oh, yeah, Court of Canada. Yeah. But he, he was one of the greatest IP litigators this country's ever seen. Mm -hmm. No technical background whatsoever. Uh, my partner here at the firm, Andrew Bernstein, a degree in commerce from McGill. He's a very strong intellectual property litigation lawyer. So, so my view is that if you have an interest and an intellectual curiosity to learn, you could you could do it. I but, see. but there are there are some firms that will say, look, if you're going to be dealing with PhD microbiologists, you've got to have a PhD in microbiology, and I understand that. Mm -hmm. Maybe true in some corners of my firm as well. You know, if you want to do that high-end patent work, yeah, you may have to have that PhD. Often, it's just so that you, you know you convey to the client that you have the expertise. But at our firm, and I think it's, it's true of most firms, that they hire lawyers first and foremost. And so we want the best lawyers if they have some scientific um, background that just shows that they have a demonstrable interest in the space, but lawyers first. Um, but as mm -hmm. I said, it really depends on who you talk to. Yeah, it's because we've been getting different answers too, so <laughs> I thought I would ask you that question. Um, so in terms of your career development, could you please describe how it went from articling to becoming a partner in Tory's litigation dispute resolution practice? Okay, Angela, you're going to have to hang out of your hat, okay? Oh, okay. Because I've moved around a fair bit. Okay. So I, I summered articles in practice at McCarthy Tatro in Toronto. Yeah. And I practiced as a general litigator in the litigation group, and I had a small spike in intellectual property litigation. 
Um, I'd also summered at a small firm in Ottawa, a boutique. It doesn't exist there now. It's called Berger and Wayne. And there uh-huh. I met uh, Bob Berger, who writes the book, The Canadian Patent Act Annotated. And I've taken over that book from him now. So he was one of my early sentinels, if you will, sort of bringing me into the forward and, and giving me some early skills. And then McCarthy's, I really felt, was my home, having mm-hmm. summered, articled, and, and practiced there. After two years of practice, I went through a process that I think a lot of our associates go through, which is a, a little bit of self-doubt, a little bit of uh, needing to reinvent oneself. And I would encourage people when they, they hit that spot to work really hard, to stay where you are and work through it. But for me, I felt I needed to uh, to make a move. I had to go to grow. So I went to Gallons uh, for three very good years, working with some wonderful people. Um, after three years, I joined Ogilvy Renault, and they opened up in Toronto. It's now Norton Rose. And I was there for... 15 months when I had an opportunity to work at Ron Dimmick's boutique here in Toronto. I was there for two years. Uh-huh. I joined Tories in 2001 to add bench strength to this firm's litigation practice in the area of IP. And uh, this platform is a wonderful platform, and so the practice took off. In 2002, we absorbed an IP firm from uh, an entire practice from another firm, and, and uh-huh. I like to say the rest was history. <laughs> uh, so along the way, can you please tell us about the challenges you faced in developing your career? So, uh, good question. Um, they're all good questions, but this one in particular is good. Um, it's competitive. Yes. Right? It's competitive um, out there in the, in the marketplace. And for me, having changed firms a number of times, I mean, I was constantly in a position where I had to sell myself. You know, I articled my practice at one firm, then I had to go and reinvent myself at another firm, and at another firm, and then at, at Dimmick's firm, and then ultimately at Tories. Uh, and so that sort of hardened me a little bit to always be on guard, that you have to you have to put yourself out there. You've got to do every piece of work like your life depends on it, and then eventually you have to become self-sufficient and find work. And, and in finding work, you, you continue to find that it gets more competitive. You've mm-hmm. got to sell your firm. You've got to sell yourself. You've got to differentiate you and your firm from your competitors, and that's so that's so different from what we learned at law school. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, sitting there yeah. with a big cup of tea and reading stuff. <laughs> and so the competitive stuff can be tiring and it can be stressful, yeah. but you have to do it. And um, you know, it's it's hard. So I think that's the biggest challenge in terms of litigation. And, and I'm going to use the vernacular: losing sucks. Mm-hmm. And so losing cases is really hard as well. And so as you're trying to build yourself up and as you're trying to sell yourself from time to time, you have to recognize the fact that in, in the dual world of litigation, there are winners and losers, and sometimes we lose. I like to say we finish second. <laughs> um, but after losing a big case, uh, you, can, you can have the wind taken out of your, your sails, and you have to find a way to rebound and get back up on that competitive edge and do it again. And so if you tend to be a person that uh, I like to think of myself as thoughtful and sensitive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, I find those challenges because it, it's, it's not necessarily not an arrogant person. So finding, finding a way to get back out there and keep fighting has always been tough, but, um, but I do it because I, I love to do it. So but, but I'm being honest, that's a challenge. Okay. So in terms of your um, current role, could you just tell us about your day-to-day responsibilities? So first and foremost, you know, we are, um, at Tories, we have a very um, low level of government, if you will. So I refer to myself as a partner in the Tories litigation group. Yeah. Um, it's a very loose structure. We try to, to minimize the 
the differentiation between partners and associates. And so when we have teams that work on particular files, mm-hmm. I'm responsible for business generation. I am responsible for some client relationship development and management. And then ultimately, sometimes I have to actually do some work. <laughs> and so on the files that we yeah. have, uh, certain assignments will be given to me, and I have to work those up with some associates. Okay. Um, you know, every day starts with, uh, with obviously a look at my calendar, both of what I have to do today and what I have to do in the week. Every day I have client phone calls. I inevitably every day have to deal with budgeting, uh, with staffing, and, and helping make sure that the files move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, we have a big team, so in most cases we're able to split up the work. Um, and uh, largely my, my role is one of oversight. I just watch other people do great things. I see. So what skills or characteristics have contributed most to your success? <laughs> I want to say the ability to stand and get out of the way of progress. Um, I would say that, you know, given the fact that I've been on a number of platforms and I've worked with many, many very good lawyers, mm-hmm. I've had an opportunity to sort of sit back and watch and listen and learn. My father, my, my late father, bless his heart, uh, yeah. used to say that we should use our, our senses in the way that God gave them to us. You know, we have two eyes, two ears, and a mouth, and we should use them in that proportion. Mm-hmm. And so I think because I've had a chance to, to see a number of very good lawyers operate, I've able to, I've been able to sort of take and adapt uh, the things I like from those and implement them, in, implement them into my practice. I've also had to learn to become a little bit more flexible. Okay. Um, you know, as you run a file and as you lead a file, you, you quickly realize that your ideas aren't the best and that your way isn't always the highway. And so sometimes you have to find a way to become flexible to find the best result by allowing ideas to bounce off of ideas. Okay. So um, are there any courses that you would recommend students take for those who are interested in pursuing litigation? You know, when it comes to law school, I think that students really should focus on the courses that really drive their interest. Looking for opportunities to have people or events or issues influence them in a mm-hmm. particular way. That said, you know, it, the nice thing about law school is the chance you can experiment, you can try things to see whether or not you have an interest. And so I always encourage those with an interest in litigation to consider uh, mooting or trial advocacy or uh, interview courses, you know, clinical courses where you can try some skills and try things out. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, in, in terms of substance, I mean, it's very important to take a course in evidence, uh, yeah. particularly in those that want to uh, to pursue criminal law. Uh, criminal lawyers always joke that uh, criminal lawyers know evidence and and, uh, and civil lawyers don't, <laughs> but uh, but you can answer that by a good grounding in evidence. I see. Um. What do, do you wish you had known when entering this field? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, the pressure never stops. The pressure never stops. And the higher you rise in the profession, the, the, yeah. more, the greater the pressure that comes. Um, you know, sometimes people refer to lawyers using phrases like workaholic and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, or 24-7. Uh, my daughter sometimes teases that uh, teases me that my BlackBerry is always on. Um, it, it's it is often on, but and it's often not now after she made that comment. But uh, the pressure never stops, and so you have to find a way to continually push yourself. And, and more importantly, you have to find a way to uh, renew yourself. 
so you know, in later life, I've now learned uh, to match up my love of the outdoors and some physical exercise. You wouldn't know it by looking at me, but I enjoy running. For a while, I enjoyed cycling, uh, like uh-huh. hiking. And so I, I think that had I known that sooner that I would need to take care of my mind and my body, I think I might have worked a little harder way back in law school to, to incorporate physical fitness into my life. Okay. And... I guess on a more positive note, <laughs> what is the best thing about your job? The people. The people. Meeting people like you, my clients, uh, my colleagues, the opposing lawyers that I come across, they're all excellent. It's the people that drive me into this. You know, for, for clients, you get to solve problems yeah. in the company because they have a need, and so you're actually providing services and you feel like you're doing something. With my colleagues, you know, I've got a lot of young people here that have invested in our practice here. And I love watching their careers develop. I love giving them opportunities and watching them succeed. Um, and then my opponents, you know, I, I have the benefit of being against some of the best lawyers in Canada. And many of them drive me crazy <laughs> on a daily basis. Uh, but they're very good. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you sit there and you, you listen to your opponent strip apart your case or say things in such a way that you can never think of, you just think, wow, that's good. I want to beat them even more now. Um, oh. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's the people um, at, at all levels. Is it fair to say that that's also what keeps you motivated? Yeah, the people. The people, you know, I'm a people person. And yeah. that's the beautiful thing about law, is that you can you can fill your day with, with people. And, you know, it, it, it's not to say that I, I don't have friends. I do. I have friends. I'm very close to my family mm-hmm. uh, outside of the practice of law. And so I get my emotion fulfillment elsewhere. And I spend a lot of time with these people here. Not to say that they're my friends. I mean, you know, my promise to them is not to be an uncle or a brother, <laughs> but uh, but help make them a really good lawyer. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, people keep me motivated. Uh, what changes do you anticipate in your practice area in the next five years? I think the practice is going to be much more automated than it is now. There oh. are going to be so many more features that are going to be handled by computers that lawyers do now, and I think that we are facing a brave new world. I don't think that, I, I think that some thought leaders have been started to think about what the legal profession yeah. would look like uh, in 10 years from now, but I think that those of us who are, will be lucky enough to be practicing in 10 years' time uh, will find that the, the world has changed considerably even more. And is there a career goal that you're still striving for?
And just picking up what you said uh, before, so you litigated at the Supreme Court. What was that like? Because <laughs> I've seen some Supreme Court cases, and they're very, I guess they're very intense, because you have those judges sitting in front of it's, you. <laughs> it, it's, it's very intimidating. And so the case that I was involved in was the, uh, the 2012 Teva Sildenafil Viagra decision. Uh. And, um, you know, I mean, I, there was a piece of advice that was given to me by a colleague who's now a judge, Justice Wendy Benz in Ontario, mm-hmm. said to me that in preparing for the Supreme Court of Canada, you should do nothing more than write up the questions that you want to have and write up the questions that you don't want to have and focus on those. Oh. Do not oh. try to attempt to steal the narrative from that bench. You will fail. Oh. <laughs> and so I failed. Um, it was, it's very intense. The one thing that, that you, you don't know from watching the videos, and, and I should say that if anybody wants to see a very good um, yeah. demonstration where it's like the Supreme Court, click on the case that was argued on, I think it was November the 8th, the U.S. Election Day, the AstraZeneca and Apotex case. Oh. You'll see a lot of leading lights in the IP litigation bar arguing. You'll get a really good sense of, of the, the to and fro and the, the attempt of the Supreme Court candidate to get, get the right answer. But what you don't see when you're watching the video is that when you're actually standing in front of the court, yeah. they are so close to you. <laughs> it is very, it's not only intense, it's intimate. So yeah. it's, it's quite intimidating, and I think it's one of those things that you have to do once in your life just to get it over with. Um, I, I will say I'd like to go back, uh, because mm-hmm. I, think, I think I've learned some things now from my first time there, so I want to go back, but it's... Uh, uh, you know, it certainly underscores my view that, that appellate advocacy is a strange beast and a beast unto itself, so much different from uh, litigating cases of that first instance. So, uh, in the federal court, then what would what would that be like? Because I've only had the chance to actually watch the Supreme Court cases since I'm in Ottawa, <laughs> and so yeah, so that they're really close. So. <laughs> Um, so what what would you say is the difference for that type of court? So the, the federal court, I mean, the federal court's a great court. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a statutory court. It's a relatively new court in our history. Um, it's, a, it's a court comprised of judges who, let me say, are pluralistic in the sense that they're, um, they're not just uh, adjudicating disputes between the combatants. Mm-hmm. You know, they're... they're They've got judicial review, they've got tax, they've got immigration, they've got a, a plurality of interests, which is why I say they're pluralistic. Um, and you have varying degrees of aptitude and interest in, in the intellectual property cases. So you've got a judge, you've mm-hmm. got a judge who I think is working very hard to do his or her job. And in many cases, you've got a judge that is struggling to learn at the same point as being, you know, so at the same time you're trying to persuade a judge to yes. a particular point of view just trying to learn as they go along. So what you find is that you've got a lot more teaching going on in federal court, a lot more sort of what I call primer-type work, you know, giving general principles of law and an overview of the science before you drill down into the issues in the case. And that's completely different from the Supreme Court of Canada. That said, if you do watch the webcast from uh, last week's case, uh, one of the things you may say is, wow, this, this court perhaps could have used a primer um, because there were some of the questions were, you know, there seemed to be, I, I won't say, uh, I don't want to use the word confusion, but it, it seemed that there's, they were, they were having a lot of thoughts and they were having a trouble tacking down their thoughts onto a framework they wanted to apply. 
Um, but I've never seen a Supreme Court of Canada more engaged than I saw last week. So if you're interested in seeing what appellate advocacy is like, I'd suggest you, you click that on and give it a, give it a watch. Perfect. And um, I guess one final question would be, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you do for work? If I wasn't a lawyer, yes. what would you do for work? <laughs> well, you know, I'm uniquely unqualified to do anything, but what I do, <laughs> I, I guess I would start with a joke that I own a bike shop in Pembroke, but um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a lousy mechanic, and I must confess I'm not even sure what Pembroke is. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a guy that has too many interests. I, I yeah. love science. Um, I love to learn a new case. I like being curious. Um, you know, in some of my cases, I've joked that I'd like to be a medicinal chemist because I, I, the process of discovering new things is kind of wonderful. Mm-hmm. I like to write. Um, you know, I've written some short stories, and I've written some stories for the bar. I write a book on pad law. Uh, I like to teach. I teach a course on booting up at U of T. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, I guess, you know, I, I can't answer your question other than to say that whatever it would be, and it wouldn't be a bike shop in Pembroke, but whatever it would be, it would need to be something that involves being around people. Oh, okay. um, but, but honestly, it's a tough question for me because I've been so, as you've heard, I've been so focused on patent law mm-hmm. since before law school. And so having set my path, um, I've, I've pursued it. Um, this is something I've been targeting for a very long time and now haven't done so. I've got people coming up the path behind me that have invested in me, so I can't imagine doing anything else. Well, thank, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Angela. I think that the blog is a wonderful idea for law students, and I wish you much, much success. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.